If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 2. If you need a Bible, my friend Bud can help you out. Romans chapter 2. It's been a while since I've stood here. We had Pastor Steve from Stage 4 Ministries, and then we had Pastor Ed from New Jersey, and then we had Pastor Juan, because I had COVID. So I'm your guest speaker this morning. <laughs> but man, I'm excited to get back into Romans and, and, and go verse by verse and see what God has for us. I got, I got a friend request the other day on, on Facebook. You know, someone I, someone I used to go to church with, ha haven't seen in years, really, haven't talked to in years, all of a sudden pops up, wants to connect online. So I said, yeah, accept friend and hey, what's up? Because, and he says, not much. You know, I'm not living here anymore. I'm living there. And I'm not working here anymore. I'm working there. And I'm not with her anymore. I'm with her. And, and I said, hey, that's cool. So, so you're living where you're living. You know, there's a Calvary, like the next town over that's really cooking. Their pastor, I actually met at a conference. Super cool guy. Are, are you there? If you're not there, you could check it out. Long pause. And I thought that he ghosted me. And right about the time I'm, I'm about to you know, close my phone and go do other things, it, he comes back. Stop judging me. You can't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged, pastor guy. Only God can judge me. And, and then he disappears. I tried to hit him back, but he'd unfriended me. So I send him a friend request, and he blocks me. Which, which was sad. It, and, 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 and sad just because I, I, I don't know why he reached out. I, he reached out for a reason. I have no idea why. But I'm even sadder because he's throwing out a bunch of lines at me about judging and being judged. And I know he knows better. Because we went to church together for a bunch of years and we were well taught. Judge not, yes, lest ye be judged. I know he knows what that really means. Just like you guys know what it really means. That's Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount. Not saying don't judge anybody ever or you'll die. He's saying, we know this, don't pull out a ruler unless you're willing to let that same ruler be used on you. This is the same passage where he talks about yank the, the plank out of your own eye before you start talking about specks in somebody else's. It's the same thing that Paul talks about in Romans 2, verse 1, which is where we left off like 100 years ago. We talked about that, right? Before you talk about somebody else's bad breath, you got to make sure that you don't need to pop a tic-tac. <laughs> but see, the next line that he threw at me was even more interesting, though. Only God can judge me. And, and that, it's interesting because that, that idea shows up a bunch of places in Scripture. He's not pointing at nothing. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says, I know of nothing against myself. I can't think of anything to judge myself for, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Paul is saying, I can't, I can't judge anyone else. I can't even judge me. God judges me. James says it even more clearly. James 4, verse 12, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? 
Only, only God can judge me. That shows up a bunch of places, not just those two. That idea shows up a bunch of places in Scripture. But it never, not once, means what people want it to mean when they're shouting it at you. Or when they're typing it in all caps at you. What people generally mean when, when they're throwing that line up like a shield or wielding it like a weapon is you don't understand. You're mean. You don't know what it's like to be mean. You don't know my heart. Only God knows my heart. And, and if he were here, he'd tell you that it's okay to be me just the way that I'm being because he understands. God understands me. He gets me. He's okay with me. So why aren't you? It's almost like when you see a child who's trying to play one parent off against another. What do you mean I can't stay up until 10? Dad lets me stay up until 10. Dad loves me. That's not what, what Scripture's talking about when it says only God can judge. It's not even close to what Scripture is saying. Yeah, yeah God loves us, every one of us, perfectly. But only God can judge me doesn't mean he lets us do what we want as long as we want and stay up as late as we want with no consequences. He's a father. Only God can judge me. We want it to mean dad would let me. What it really means is a whole lot closer to just wait until your father gets home. As we get back into Romans 2 this morning, Paul's going to show us only God can judge me is not, contrary to popular belief, a cosmic get-out-of-jail-free card. On the contrary, it's a truth that should startle us, that, sh that should shake us to our very core. Romans chapter 2. We spent a couple of weeks here before, you know, guest speaker month. But it's been a minute, so let's back up to the beginning. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. That's the plank and the speck part. That's the, the pop a tic-tac before criticizing somebody else's breath verse. But verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same things, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? We camped out there the last time we were together in Romans, the goodness of God. We took a deep dive into that. But, verse 5, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patience, continuance, and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, well, they get tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. There was a shortage of periods when Paul wrote that passage. (laughs) Man. Only God can judge me. Before we toss that phrase around casually, defensively, offensively, defiantly, it'd be good to know what we're really saying. That's true with anything, right? Before you use a word, before you use an expression, good to know what it means. Otherwise, you find yourself in the pulpit talking about Netflix and chill, which it turns out doesn't have anything to do with Netflix or chill. (laughs) One time. (laughs) And I see my daughter shaking her head. And now you're wondering what it means, ask someone under 30. We're going to keep going. Paul, Paul just told us a lot. Come back. (laughs) I know it's my fault and I'm sorry, but come back. Paul just told us about God's judgment and how it's different than our judgment. He just told us how only God can judge perfectly and completely. We need to to, to understand what he's saying here because it's important. We need to understand what he's trying to convey before we go tossing that line around. And he just gave us 10 things to know about God's judgment, 10 things to consider. And and together they tell us, only God can judge me. It has nothing to do with, people, with what people think it does. Ten things we know, need to know about God's judgment. Number one, see, I threw myself off. Number one on a list of ten. We're going to do a top ten list this morning. Number one thing we need to know about God's judgment, God's judgment is factual. Verse two, according to truth, according to fact, according to what's real. In the world, there's your perspective and my perspective, and, and then there's what really happened. You know, I think that Hector will haul up and slug me in the head. He said that he was hitting a spider. <laughs> Maybe he saw a spider and said, here's my chance. In the world, there's, there's your version, my version, and what really happened. With God, there's just what really happened. Because he knows, he sees with perfect clarity. Not covered by bias, not lacking any detail. He knows everything, sees everything from absolutely every perspective. His judgment is based on fact. Here's number two. We're moving quick because we got ten. Verse three, second bullet on our list, but it's verse three. Paul says that God's judgment is inescapable. Our sin nature gives us an almost infinite ability to rationalize almost everything, right? I needed to. I had to. The rules don't apply to me the same way. You see, I'm an exception. I'm different. I just can't. Rationalize all we want, though. And we want to. We still can't escape the reality. There's right and wrong in the universe. That fact is inescapable. There's right and wrong in the universe. We prove it every time we point at someone someone and say, well, you're just wrong. You're doing wrong. You can't do that. It's wrong. Every time we say that, every time we, we point at someone and think that, we're proving there's right and wrong in the universe. 
And the meaning of right and wrong, the definition of those things, doesn't change based on color or creed or party or politics or the nation or neighborhood you live in. Because the definition of right and wrong is established by God, and he doesn't change. No room to squirm here. No no room to say, well, it might be wrong for you, but it's okay for me. No, the whole concept of right and wrong comes from God who doesn't change. Right and wrong are inescapable, and God's judgment based on the right and wrong that we do is likewise inescapable. And we need to not be confused about that. Here's bullet point number three. We need to not be confused just because God is merciful. Just because God is merciful doesn't mean his judgment isn't real. We find this in verse 4, and we talked about this last time. God, in his mercy, sometimes, lots of times, delays judgment. And we know why. 2 Peter 3, 9. Why does God delay judgment when he does? To give us time to repent, yeah. Time to see his goodness, Time to realize that what God offers is better, so much better than anything that we're choosing in his place. I think it was Harry Ironside that said, God is a substitute for anything, but nothing, nothing is a substitute for God. And I've done the research. I've chased pretty much every buzz this world has to offer. Drugs, sex, gambling, hitting it big in business, making the extravagant purchase You know, the mood-altering shopping, the excitement of a new relationship, the thrill, if you want to call it that, of of a late-night hookup. There's nothing in the world that can compare to the love of God. And there's no way to describe it to someone. They have to taste and see for themselves that the Lord is good. Trying to describe it, it's, 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 it's like explaining colors to a blind person. But once you've you've tasted it, once you've experienced, there's nothing that can compare, right? And God in his mercy gives us time to figure that out. He gives us time to do that. Gives us time to respond to his call and realize, oh God, you're so much better than anything. But that doesn't mean his judgment changes. It only means it's suspended, If you go to court and you're found guilty and you're sentenced to a year in jail, but the sentence is suspended, it's still hanging over you. It's just delayed. God delays his sentence. Why? Because love. Because mercy. Because his greatest desire is that we would repent and come to him. But he will judge. He has to. He's promised to. He will, verse 5, pour out his wrath on sinners. If he doesn't, he denies himself. If he doesn't, he denies his own character. God is perfect justice. God will, verse 5, pour out his wrath on sinners. And when he does, end of verse 5, it'll be perfectly righteous. Another word for righteous, this is bullet point number four, equitable. God's judgment is perfectly fair, perfectly just, entirely deserved by those who choose to go their own way instead of God's way. 
And we've talked about that a lot recently, so we're going to keep going. God's judgment is equitable. Here's point number five. God's judgment is also proportional to our sin. We get that from verse six. He judges us according to our deeds. And we'll slow down a little bit here because this is a little bit new for us and because Paul camps out here for a while. Verse 6 to 10 are, are really an expansion of this one thought that God's judgment is proportional to our thoughts, to our deeds, to our actions. And here's what we have to notice if we don't want to get confused. Look at verse 7. Eternal life, God's judgment yields eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, God's judgment yields, verse 9, tribulation and anguish. And it's two categories of people, two different categories Paul has in view here. Verse 7, he's talking about believers. He's talking about those who have repented, who have gone to the cross, who have asked for forgiveness, who've trusted Jesus for salvation, who are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are able to do what's good, verse 7. Who are seeking to glorify God, same verse. Who want to honor his name. This is, this is the same idea that Paul expresses in, in 2 Corinthians 5. We were there not long ago. You probably remember Paul saying, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. And that's not the great white throne judgment. That's the Bema seat of Christ where believers stand to receive rewards based on the things that they have done in this life for God. The things that we do for the right reasons, Jesus, in the right power, the Holy Spirit, things that we do for the right motives, not us but others, love. So verse 7 is talking about believers and the degrees of reward waiting for us in heaven based on our faithfulness in this life after coming to Christ. Good? Most of us are familiar with that. Like I said, we, we talked about it not long ago in 2 Corinthians. What might be less familiar to us is the other thing Paul is reminding us of in verse 8, the other category of people he's speaking of. Judgment of works, it turns out, is proportional, not just for believers, but for unbelievers. You and I look forward to rewards in heaven based on our faithfulness, but the punishment in hell for the unbeliever is proportional to their wickedness. Really? Yeah. Paul is, is giving us a comparison here. He doesn't, he doesn't light it up like a billboard, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. Go with me on this. Jesus, in Matthew 6, verse 20, tells us, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You've heard that, you've read that, we remember that. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven that moth nor rust cannot corrupt. That's for us as believers. Paul is saying something reciprocal here in verse 6. He's saying, yeah, while the believer is doing that, storing up treasure in heaven, the unbeliever is storing up wrath in hell. And there's degrees of punishment in hell. Really? Yeah, Paul just said so. 
And if you don't believe Paul, Jesus says so. He says it in Matthew 10. He says it again in Matthew 11. Matthew eleven twenty two. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. The wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon will experience less severe punishment than you will, Jesus says to the people that he's addressing there. That's sobering, right? Sometimes I'll hear, I'll hear people say something like, well, you know, I'm already going to hell. I might as well enjoy this life. I'm already going to hell. I might as well live like it. Okay, the, the first thing I want to say to that person as long as you're alive, you can choose whether or not you're going to hell. If you're still drawing breath, you can change your mind. You can choose not to. You can choose Jesus instead. But the other thing that I wish that that person knew, the person who says, hey, I'm already going to hell, I might as well keep going. If you keep choosing hell, you'll keep making it worse. Hell's not an all-or-nothing proposition. For the person who keeps going and going and going, verse 8, there's greater indignation, greater wrath, same verse, greater anguish, verse 9. As we live, we keep storing up judgment in proportion to our deeds. That was bullet point number 5. Bullet point number 6, that judgment that the unbeliever is storing up, it's eternal, we find that in verse 7, and we've talked about this recently, so let's pause just long enough to remind ourselves, we are immortal, every one of us. Our bodies die, our souls do not. We sometimes get it turned around, and I say, well, I have a soul. No, we, you are a soul. You have a body. When that body dies, your soul lives on. And if you die apart from God when your body dies... Your soul is not annihilated, it's not snuffed out, it's never destroyed, it just goes to live apart from God forever. If we're living apart from God when our body dies, our soul will live apart from God forever, in darkness and in anguish. Apart from God. And here's something that you may not have thought of. Quite possibly apart from every other human soul. Sometimes I'll hear somebody say, I'm looking forward to hell. All my friends will be there. Party. Okay, all your friends might be there. I don't know who you hang out with. That doesn't mean you'll see them. Leave aside the whole anguish and agony thing for a moment. Is there anywhere in Scripture that says that people who are in hell are in hell together? I mean, think about it. Misery loves company. If hell is punishment, does it make sense that God would allow us to be with each other? At least one commentator I know, looking at the Greek, when Jesus talks about outer darkness in Matthew twenty-two thirteen and elsewhere, says, you know, that implies solitary confinement. Absolute solitude absolutely alone for absolutely forever i mean if hell wasn't a sobering enough idea as it was i'm not sure i can prove that 
that hell is eternal solitude, eternal solitary confinement. On the other hand, it does make sense in light of what Paul says next. Point number seven, God's judgment is individual. It comes upon each of us personally. Look back at verse six, and we'll see Paul make this point. Talking about judgment, verse six, he says each one. Verse nine, he says every soul. Verse 10, he says everyone or everybody, depending on your translation. Each and every one of us will stand before God. Each and every one of us needs to decide for ourselves whether we're going to escape God's judgment or endure God's judgment. We need to choose. Some people want to come in under somebody else's covering. Like at work, you know, somebody swipes their badge and you kind of sneak in the door behind them. My parents are Christian. My grandmother goes to church. I take my kids to church. My wife reads her Bible every single day. That's great. That's the wrong tone. That is great. I mean that. Those are all good things. What about you? No one can repent for you. No one can pass a relationship with God unto you. No one can decide for you what to do with the cross. We'll all stand before God one of two ways, on the basis of our works or on the basis of his finished work at Calvary. Spoiler alert, our works aren't enough. Every world religion except Christianity has this basic idea. Heaven, paradise, nirvana is a function of whether our good works outweigh our bad works. Christianity says there's no such thing as enough good works. You've heard the illustration about trying to jump over a canyon on the basis of your works. I was thinking about this because Pastor Juan was talking about driving out to Utah and going across those you know, huge ravines on I-70 where you, you, were, you, you look down and it's just, it seems like it goes down forever. Trying to jump across one of those canyons, hundreds of feet across, one of us might jump further than another. You know, I might, I might make it five feet because I'm old and bigger than I should be. <laughs> Hector might make it 10 feet because he's young and nimble. Dakota, Dakota's an athlete in training. He, can, he might make it 15 feet. None of us are making it across. And so, too, you might have more good works than the person next to you, fewer good works than the person next to them, but none of us are making it across. Our only hope is if Jesus reaches out and carries us across. Some people try to go the other way. Some people try to, try to slip in on somebody else's badge. Well, they're a Christian. I'm just going to follow, on, you know, follow behind them, follow on their footsteps. Some people go the other way and say, well, my parents weren't Christian. Grandma didn't take me to church. I don't know anybody who owns the Bible. God can't judge me the same way. Yeah, he can. Verse 11, and this is number eight on our list. Verse 11, God is impartial. And, and, and Paul's getting into deep weeds here, and he's going on to say a bunch of things. But one of the things that Paul is saying, verse 11 and following, Jewish reader who grew up knowing God, being taught the Bible, sacrificing at the temple, Gentile reader who only heard about God five minutes ago, God offers the same salvation to both of you. 
That was Romans chapter 1, right? Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of Pharisees, couldn't know more about the Bible. Probably knew more than anybody else alive at that time. And the thief on the cross, who couldn't know less about the Bible. Same salvation. Jesus offers the same salvation, the same forgiveness to all who choose him. And he promises judgment to all who reject him. Every one of us, point number nine, has an opportunity to choose or reject God. God promises that. You'll have the information that you need to make a choice, and I'm going to hold you responsible for the choice that you make. Oh, we squirm when we hear that. Verse 12 through 15, Paul says, squirm all you want. Doesn't change the plan. I'm Jewish. I'm part of one of God's chosen people. That Yes, God may have chosen you for greater revelation. What did you do with that revelation? Did you choose to follow him? We can squirm to find a loophole. I'm, I'm a Gentile. I just, I just found out about God's word. I've never read God's word. Yeah, but God wrote his word on your heart before he carved it into stone tablets. Before God carved the law onto stone tablets on Mount Sinai, he wrote it on our stony hearts. And Paul's question, what do we do with what he put there? Do we let it, verse 15, accuse us, convict us? Do we let the right and wrong that God has placed in us point us to our need for forgiveness? Or do we ignore it? Same verse, do we keep excusing ourselves, coming up with reasons why what we know is wrong isn't really wrong? Yeah, I know that God wrote that on my heart, but he didn't mean it. That was for other people. For me, it's actually okay. God's truth doesn't apply to me. It's what everybody else thinks that matters. It's what the crowd decides. I mean, who's supposed to know what God thinks anyway? We are. You're supposed to know because you do, Paul says. And God's going to hold you accountable for it. He's going to hold you responsible for knowing what to do. He's going to hold you responsible for doing what you know. And God, last point, this is number 10. We're doing good. God knows what we choose. Even if no one else does, God does. We don't like that idea very much. We're Americans. We like to think of ourselves as mysterious and enigmatic. We want to grow up to be the Marlboro Man. Colin Eastwood, the man with no name. We want to think that we're the only ones who really, really know our hearts. But point number 10, Paul says, yeah, think that all you want. One problem, God doesn't recognize our right to privacy. Because he's God. There's nothing hid from him. There's nothing confidential in his domain. And that's just Luke 12, too. Nothing covered, there's nothing covered that won't be revealed. There's nothing hidden that won't be known. There's nothing in our thoughts and actions that will not be judged. 
turn it around, get rid of the double negative. Every one of our thoughts and actions will be judged and will fall short and will be punished accordingly. Only God can judge me. That's not good news for those who will face it. Paul just told us 10 different ways. It's the opposite of good news. Only God can judge me. If that's what someone is holding on to, they're clinging to a death sentence. According to the gospel, verse 16, no one can stand before God's judgment. According to the gospel, verse 16, no one will escape God's judgment unless they obey the gospel. The gospel isn't a doctrine to be believed, right? It's not an idea to, to give assent to. It's a command to be obeyed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means believe that he's able and willing to forgive us of our sin based on his sacrifice. Jesus made our forgiveness possible when he died in our place, when he bore our judgment, when he hung on the cross and said to the Father, treat me like they deserve and treat them like I deserve. That's the gospel. Jesus stood in our place, hung in our place, and bore God's wrath, received God's judgment for us. This is some pretty heavy stuff, Patrick. What do I, what do I, what do, I do with this? Four things as we wrap up. What do you take away from this morning? Four things brought to you by the letter R. The first is respond. Respond. Only God can judge me. Yes, and he will in all the ways Paul just described unless he judges Jesus in our place, unless we respond to the gospel, unless we take Jesus up on his offer to trade places with us at the cross. How do I do that? We just talked about it. Confess your sin. Which means admit that you've done stuff that is sin, that you've missed the mark. That you've looked at right and wrong and done wrong. That you've looked at good and evil and done evil. That you've come to the fork in the road, this way is God, this way is not God, and you've run down the not God road. Admit it, confess it, and repent of it. Decide that you're done with it, and ask forgiveness for it, because you can Crime has to be punished, but Jesus was punished in our place. We get to go to God and say, hey, double jeopardy. You can't punish me when someone else has already been found guilty. Jesus made that possible for us. He died on the cross to make us this offer. Hey, give me all your sin. I'll become sin for you. I'll pay for your sin. I'll take the judgment you deserve. Only, only one thing you've got to do for me. Only one thing I ask in return. Let me give you all my righteousness. Let me give you the relationship with the Father that is mine. Let me, let me extend to you my birthright. Let me make you sons and daughters. 
have, have you taken Jesus up on that offer? Because if we, if we consider the picture of judgment that Paul is painting for us this morning, that's the first thing we got to do if we haven't done it, is respond. Respond to Jesus' offer to deliver us from judgment. Second thing we need to do, if, if you haven't done that, that, that's it, that's everything. And nothing else I'm going to talk about matters. First thing you got to do is respond. Second thing, assuming that we have, second thing that we get to do, we get to remember that Jesus bore our judgment. Okay, Patrick, how could I forget? I don't know, but people do. I've had a whole lot of people, lots and lots of people, people I've gone to church with for years, Say to me, all right, so, so the Bible really boils down to this. In the Old Testament, God was angry, but now in the New Testament, he's not. No. Wrong, and not just wrong, dangerous. Because it implies that God changed. It's like, well, Dad came home, and he had a long day. He had a rough day at work. So he came home, and he saw the mess in the living room, and man, was he upset. But, you know, he cooled down, and after a while, he apologized for overreacting and took us all out for ice cream. No, that's not it at all. God hates sin always. God judges sin always. God would have judged us for our sin forever if it wasn't for Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus dying on the cross, if it wasn't for us repenting and asking for the forgiveness he made possible at the cross. Well, we have to remember, the judgment still happened. The wrath didn't just go away. God didn't change his mind about it. He didn't forget about it. He changed the target. He changed who received it. We need to remember that. We need to respond to the gospel. We need to remember the meaning, the full meaning of the gospel. And then we got to rejoice. We're forgiven. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We're not who we were. We're not defined by what we did. And, and we're, we're children of God. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And instead of heaping up more and more wrath, we get to accumulate more and more crowns, greater and greater rewards that no one can take away. Not even us. Even when we stumble, even when we fail, even when we fall, because we will, we still don't need to be afraid of God's judgment. Not anymore. Not if we've chosen Jesus. If we've chosen Jesus, we're forgiven now and forever. When we do what we do, whatever it is, Jesus has already paid for it if we're in him. When we sin today, we get to repent. And that's its own joy. That's a weird concept, the joy of repentance. But think about it. I'm forgiven. I am forgiven. I will always be forgiven. The sin that I did, the sin that I'm doing, the sin that I will do, it's all covered by the blood. There's no judgment left. There's only grace. And I get to bring my sin to God and say, God, I'm sorry. But we're still us. That's three. Respond, remember, 
Rejoice, last one. Repeat. Again and again and again. Repeat the gospel to anyone willing to listen. Only God can judge me. The world's going to keep repeating that to us. I'd be surprised if you don't hear it this week. Only God can judge me. The world's going to keep repeating that to us. We need to keep repeating the truth to them. Only God can judge me. Yeah, you're right. And he will. So will you please run to Jesus before he has to? Before you force him to? That's what I wanted to say to my friend who popped up on social media before he unfriended me, before he blocked me. Run to Jesus before you find yourself standing before him. Because if you keep making choices like you were making the last time that I saw you making them, it's going to be sooner than you think. Might not be long for any of us. Which is why if we love someone, which is why if we call someone friend, we can't wait. It's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. Everything Paul's been talking about. After we die, don't pass go, don't collect $200, judgment. And we can't control when we die. Person that I was talking to, messaging with, they unfriended me. They didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to be reminded about Jesus. And, and, that, and, and that, that's his right. That's his prerogative. But that should be the only thing that stops us, any of us, from repeating the gospel to people in our lives. The only thing that should stop us is somebody walking away, literally or figuratively, refusing to hear. Now, do we need to be sensitive about when we share? Yeah. Do we need to be prayerful about how we share? Of course. But if someone friends us, befriends us, online, in person, I don't, if someone enters our circle, if, someone, if someone's life intersects ours, if someone crosses our path, it, it shouldn't be long before they're, they're confronted in words or in actions with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what friends do. That's what love does. And if we're not willing to do that, if we're more worried about the response that we're going to get, we've got to ask ourselves, is the love of God really in us? If I'm more concerned about getting a negative response than in my friend facing God's judgment, is the love of God really in me? Have I responded to the gospel? Am I remembering God's judgment? Am I rejoicing in forgiveness? Because if I am, the love should overflow. The gospel should pour out. I've, I've, to, I've told the story of Penn Jillette before because it made such an impact on me. Penn Jillette, part of Penn and Teller, the comic magic Las Vegas guys, now a political commentator, and, and an outspoken atheist. He tells the story, and he, and he tells it a decent amount. About one night after a show, someone came up, they had a backstage pass, they go up to meet Penn Jillette, and they hand him a Bible. And everybody with him is offended. Oh, don't you know that Mr. Gillette is an atheist, and, and how offensive. And he shuts them down. He says, no, 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 no. 
What are you doing? How much do you have to hate someone if you believe in Jesus and believe that your eternity depends on choosing Jesus? How much do you have to hate someone to not tell them about Jesus from an atheist? If someone comes into our life, someone crosses our path, man, I don't want them to have any doubt that we've responded to the love of Christ. I don't want it to be long at all before, before they hear us remembering his faithfulness at the cross. Before they see us rejoicing in forgiveness. Before they hear us repeating the gospel. Because they might think, hey, only God can judge me. And it's true. But God has provided a way of escape. His name is Jesus. And we're here to make that introduction. Lord, words fail. And thank you seems far too small to express our gratitude at being delivered from judgment, eternal judgment. Lord, I pray for anyone listening who has not responded to the gospel. Would you draw them? Would you stir them? And for those of us who have, Lord, keep the reality of the cross in front of us. We pray your spirit would remind us. And we pray that your spirit would stir us, that our lives would be lives of rejoicing. Knowing the only thing this world can do is kill us and to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We have nothing to lose. It's all upside. Every sin forgiven, everything we do in your name, rewarded. Lord, fill us and overflow us with your spirit that your name would be ever on our lips and the gospel would be the soundtrack of our lives and the fragrance of Christ, our Redeemer, would trail in our wake.